0: Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Site's Hannibal Podcast, dedicated to Brian Fuller series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer slash podcaster at Sound on Site. Now I'm joined, as always, by Kate Kulzik, T V editor at Sound on Site. Kate, we are back.
1: We are. We are back. I tried to, what what, is, what should our return our triumphant return music be? I think if it's, like, some Ride of the Valkyries, or if we need, like, Back in Black, what's what's good Triumphant Return music?
0: We can just splice those two together, I think.
1: Their powers combined? Yeah. Yeah, that works.
0: <laughs> in, a, in a concerted effort to seem more cultured this season, I'm going to be drinking a different alcoholic beverage for each of these podcasts, and I invite okay. you to join me in the future.
1: I look forward to being able to do so <laughs> when my internet returns and I don't have to podcast either outside of an establishment in my car or someplace where I will immediately have to drive home from. But in the future, that sounds lovely. What are you, what are you drinking this week?
0: The, today I'm drinking a, a Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm not going to name the, the vineyard for fear of being criticized for being cheap, so I'll <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs>
1: that works. It,
0: And just before we get started, for listeners who have not seen Hannibal Season 2 or the rest of this first season, uh, we'll be treating the majority of this podcast as a spoiler-free podcast. We will talk briefly about future episodes in a smaller section at the end of every podcast, and and that will be clearly noted in the post. So if you would prefer not to be spoiled, then you can fast-forward that. And then for listeners who have seen Hannibal uh, feel free to listen to the whole thing of course this week we're gonna be talking about season one episode one aperitif written by brian fuller and directed by david slade and joining us this is a special season premiere for this is our design because we now have two special guests joining us and we went in-house we grabbed all the editors that there ever were and we'll begin by introducing justine smith who is film editor at sound on the site hello justine and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, it's
0: my pleasure to be here. And we're bringing back uh, Ricky D, who is general editor and also stand-in comics editor at Sound Onsite. Hey, Ricky, how's it going?
3: Hello, everybody.
0: All right, plenty to talk about here with this pilot for Brian Fuller's Hannibal. Uh, I wanted to begin by asking Ricky a question. During Will's lecture to his students, he tells um, his lecture hall that everyone has thought about killing someone one way or another, and as somebody who's familiar with the horror genre, I wanted to know what you think it is about stories dealing with killers that attracts people, because this isn't just a quality that we see in TV. Uh, Crime fiction is far and away the most popular genre of novel, which on the surface can sometimes feel a bit perverse. I guess so um, your response to that coming from somebody who's very experienced in this genre
3: well I think it's a matter of curiosity I mean I think that if you yourself are not a killer then it's kind of hard to imagine why someone would do the terrible things they do I guess Um, I'm a huge fan of horror films because I do like to be scared I find it exciting and raises my blood pressure it keeps me at the edge of my seat Uh, I mean, there's a ton of reasons why people like watching horror films. And I think TV shows like Hannibal, Um, I'm not entirely sure if you can pinpoint one exact reason for every single person who likes the genre. I think there's several reasons. But um, I mean, also, like one of the reasons why I happen to love horror films is because I think horror films are just easier to rewatch. I mean, for example, when I just look at my DVD collection, which I have a lot of DVDs, um, if I look on the right, I have, like, my Criterion collection, you know, a lot of art house films, foreign films, classics. And out of all of the hundreds of titles, I might have watched each and every single one of these DVDs maybe only once, which questions why I even buy them. But I look to my left and I have my horror collection, and I have, like, 500 horror movies on DVD, all of which I've watched multiple times. So the point is, is that for some reason, I just tend to re-watch horror films more so than any other genre. And I think it's because... A, they are a lot shorter. I think it's a lot more fun to watch horror films. Uh, I think when you invite your friends or family over, it's easier to put on a horror film and just kind of have a good time with the horror film. Um, I love the cinematography in most horror films, the lighting, the music. I'm especially a big fan of the score uh, when watching horror films. I just love the music. It's one of the things that stands out. Um, there are so many reasons why I love the genre. Just um, you know, the makeup, the monsters, the mythology of some of the monsters – uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why people, you know, also latch on to TV shows that touch on the horror genre as well. There's just something different about it. Like it's out of this world, it's not normal. It's not like watching, I don't know, like a, a family sitcom in which you can maybe relate to the family you're watching because you yourself have siblings and parents and find yourself in awkward situations like the people do in sitcoms. But it's not the same with horror films. I mean, hopefully, thankfully, Uh, None of us have ever been in a situation that we can, I I guess, compare to a situation we've seen a horror film in in which our life is in danger. But I don't know. I just get a kick out of being scared. And uh, I get a kick out of watching people run from evil and how they try to win in the situation and overcome um, a disastrous like outcome. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just, I just happen to love the horror genre for so, so many different reasons. And um and I, I, just, I just want to go on record and say that before Hannibal even aired one episode, I was begging Kate and Simon Howell, Kate's former co-host of the Televerse, to produce a Hannibal podcast. Kate, do you remember this? I was like, we got to do it. I was so excited for the show and nobody had faith. No, nobody believed that this show would be good.
1: I'm very much on the record as not looking forward to it, even though loving Brian Fuller and expecting it to be terrible. I was I was very, very happy to be so incredibly wrong. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But then remember this season, I was the one saying, let's do the, you know, it was between True Detective and Hannibal. And I was like, got to go Hannibal.
3: Yeah. Well, I kind of want to do both, but, you know, yeah. there's only so much time in our lives.
1: I think it turned out. <laughs> but
3: um, yeah, you know, and um, this show really, really improved. And just going back and watching this pilot over again, I was shocked because... I mean, the pilot opens and, um, I mean, Hannibal is a stranger to both Will Graham and Jack Crawford. And even Jack Crawford, it's the first time he meets Will Graham. And we, we, we've gotten to know these characters so incredibly well over two short seasons that it feels like I've been watching a show for like a decade. And even thinking back on that pilot, I had no clue it was the first time Jack Crawford met Will Graham. I thought they had already established a relationship and they were buddy buddies for like 10 years. Like, so... Even going back and watching the pilot and just noticing all the detail and noticing how a lot of those, um, you know, clues come back in, pre, in, in in future episodes. and Even in the next season, how everything links back. Like, it's just fantastic.
0: Great, Ricky. And just what you were saying, that kind of brings me to my next question. And you and Kate touched on it briefly. Uh, but Justine, why make a Hannibal series? With all the serial killer shows out there right now, You know, with a canonized portrayal of Dr. Lecter by Anthony Hopkins, with a cult following from Michael Mann's film, Manhunter, what do you see just in this first episode that justifies this show's existence?
2: I think that it's actually interesting for this podcast, I decided to read Red Dragon, um, which I hadn't read before, the Thomas Harris novel, which is the loose inspiration, to put it lightly, for the series. Um, There's obviously Brian Fuller's career beforehand. And I think that what Hannibal brings to television that I have never really seen before is a serialized horror television series that actually is horrific and adopts the the tropes of horror in a way that I've never really seen before. Um, Horror as a film genre tends to work best when it's finalized, the final moment, the final scene offers an uncomfortable closure. It's a closure that's open-ended, but it's like resolute. There's a death or there's a survival. With Hannibal, they kind of maintain that momentum throughout the pilot and throughout the whole series, which I find is incredible. It's it's like a daring experiment that somehow works.
0: That kind of relates to how I would respond to what Ricky was talking about in terms of um, our attraction as viewers to this kind of material is this horror element. There's this otherness quality to it. It's not just the fascination with death that I think people probably inherently have to some degree. It's that thing that's the unknown. Um, and, and death is a big part of that a lot of the time because that's a huge unknown portion of life. And, this is something that Brian Fuller has dealt with to a tremendous extent in his career, which makes me want to ask Kate, given his body of work, which includes Wonderfalls, Dead Like Me, and Pushing Daisies, why is Brian Fuller interested in this story and these characters, and why is he probably the right man for this job?
1: Well, it's easy to say he's the right man for the job after we've seen it, because Damn, guys. Um, But beforehand, I was leery and I shouldn't have been because, like you said, looking at his body of work, he clearly has an interest and maybe a fascination with death and how that affects the living and how death highlights can highlight life. So the finality of death or in two of his shows, the not finality of death uh, emphasizes what is precious and meaningful and also maybe not so great about life. And so to have this person with such a distinct visual, um, distinct interest in visuals and uh, able to create unique palettes and really embrace textures and colors and, and embrace a tone in the way that that Brian Fuller has in each of his previous shows. Of course, we should mention that he was only involved with Dead Like Me briefly. Um, he was only involved with the first part of that show, not the, the whole run of it. But if you look specifically at Wonder Falls and Pushing Daisies, they both have very distinct uh, tones and a very um, clear interest in, in people who are maybe considered broken by society or are otherwise cut off from those around them and so to have Brian Fuller then adapt a character as singular as Hannibal Lecter but more specifically a character cut off from those around him and maybe considered broken like Will because for me so much of the show really it comes down to that Will Hannibal dynamic without Will the show doesn't work as far as I'm concerned um so to have Brian Fuller be the one centering the show and really embracing these themes of duality and life and death and and everything that comes with, just looking back, of of course, who else could it possibly be?
0: It's strange because there is a certain whimsical quality to a lot of Brian Fuller's work, and I wouldn't say that Hannibal is completely devoid of that, but it is certainly the most serious and... I would argue intellectual take on the things that he likes to talk about in his stories. And it was, it's just kind of surprising that this is to me the, the perfect match of content and creator where this is the culmination of that fascination, fascination with death, which you mentioned. And so to kind of reiterate what we've already said, this shouldn't, work as well as it does here, but it's clear already from the beginning in just this pilot that there's something there. It might not be fully developed yet, of course it's not, but there is a spark and an energy there. And to kind of get into the pilots uh, a little bit more specifically, we have what are five um, main cast members who are listed, uh, so not as guest stars. Uh, Three of them I wanted to talk about specifically because it feels like these three are the ones that this pilot focuses most on. And to kind of just get first impressions of these characters, um, all of which are familiar if you are at all acquainted with the source material or the adaptations. uh, And one of which in particular, even if you haven't really seen any of the adaptations or read Thomas Harris works, you kind of have a sense of who hannibal lecter is anyway just through pop culture uh so I want to begin with ricky and ask what are your first impressions of mass mickelson's hannibal lecter here who we see in a very brief scene before the, a commercial break um and actually about halfway through the episode to get to him who bears the title of the entire series um eating and and smiling in a kind of darkly lit scene?
3: Well, my first impression of Mass Mickelson when I watched the pilot episode like almost two years ago was I liked his performance, but I wasn't incredibly blown over by it. In fact, um, I mean, like you said, Hannibal Lecter is actually a supporting player in this pilot because he only appears at the halfway mark. So unlike, say, Bates Motel, which I think also premiered around the same time, Will Graham, Is the main focus of at least the pilot, where I would say for the majority of the first season. And so I wasn't blown away by his performance in this specific episode because I was always thinking back on Brian Cox from Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is by far my favorite performance of Hannibal Lecter in any adaptation, big screen or small screen. I don't think he does a bad job in this episode, but. It just didn't really blow me away. And thinking back on it, I just remember, you know, we get a lot of Mass Mikkelsen playing Hannibal, talking and being sly and putting on this appearance, as, in which people just believe he's like this decent doctor. He's well groomed and uh, polite and in, extremely intelligent and whatnot. But then, you know, we do get to see him at the end of the episode when he plants some evidence and then makes the phone call and warns Abigail Hobbs' his dad that Bill Graham's onto him, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It just didn't really blow me away. So if you're talking about first impressions, it's kind of hard because, you know, I, I it's now two years later. This is not the first time I've watched the episode. So I, we're trying to review the episode as if we just saw it for the first time, not to spoil anything for listeners, right? Um, so I'm just going to leave it at that. I wasn't blown away, but I will say that. His performance gets much better, and the portrayal of the character, the way to build a character, the way we get to know him, and the writing of the character improves each and every single episode to the point where it's just unbelievable. Like, by the end of the first season, if if you are a first-time viewer, you're going to fall absolutely in love with this monster.
0: Kate, I know you've seen Silence of the Lambs, and that's most of your uh, relationship with the source material that's a very different thing that these two actors are doing did you find one of them particularly more effective or are they both doing their separate stories or their separate takes well
1: i think they're like you said they're trying to do very different things they have very different goals i remember when i heard that the show was going to be made i was like Okay, but who's going to try to take on Anthony Hopkins? Sir Anthony Hopkins, are you kidding me? It's iconic. It's an amazing performance. And then I watched this and unlike Ricky, I was captivated from the first moment. I thought it was such a wonderful show of restraint to wait until the halfway point to introduce Hannibal because it's he's the title character. We all know he's coming. And so to introduce him in that way, I'm going to have a couple different comments about that later in the podcast but uh, when we get to some of our recurring segments. But I thought it was a wonderful performance from the very first moments. And it just sort of makes you look back at Anthony Hopkins and his performance and the character, his take on the character and go, oh, that's that's adorable. You're just so over the top and ridiculous. You're a clown, whereas this is a monster. And, you know, you have to remind yourself that, again, like you said, Sean, they're functioning in very different Roles the the character you know the character here didn't work for Ricky on the first time watching it so in a two hour movie maybe this take is not successful but in a TV show it's exactly what you need and I was I was floored uh, I was I was very pleasantly surprised I should say because I came in with such low expectations and uh, then was so very pleased with with how Matt Mickelson and Brian Fuller uh, approached the character.
3: Yeah, just to be clear, I I didn't downright hate his performance. I was just slightly disappointed because I, I just feel like his Hannibal is arrogant and smug and lacking the creepiness that we get from a character that um, Brian Hawkes plays in the movie Manhunter. But I do agree, it is a far better performance than Anthony Hopkins in Science of the Lambs, which I think is incredibly overrated. I do enjoy the performance. I think it's fun to watch and I love that movie. But... To me, Brian Cox is still the best Hannibal Lecter. So,
0: Justine, what's your take on this? Do you, because you've just gone to the source material very recently, do you think of this more as uh, a recreation of that character from Thomas Harris, or is this more an interpretation that that needs to be slightly tweaked for Brian Fuller's series?
2: I think it's important to actually make the observation that. Throughout the entirety of Red Dragon, Hannibal Lecter has already been in prison for a long time. It's very much, he's very, again, very liberally interpreting what happens. Um, In fact, we haven't even, okay, I'm not going to actually say that. It's a big spoiler. But uh, what I love about the interpretation of Hannibal Lecter by Brian Fuller, not by Maz, who's amazing, but just the introduction of that character. um, If you remember, it's this tableau in this, like, darkened chiaroscuro environment of the macabre and it's the camera rising in a pen and before you see Hannibal Lecter you have first you have the shot of the pomegranate in the foreground which in mythology is the fruit of death.
1: Ah you stole my devil in the detail.
2: <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> I, I did that on purpose Kate to sabotage you. <laughs> I'm sure. And then you have the meat and then you finally have uh the image of the first image we get of Hannibal Lecter before um, in which he is eating presumably human flesh, but we can never know for sure. And then that is like, that is Hannibal, and I feel that it's not only um, a beautiful, dark, symbolic introduction of a character who is so captivating and so clearly iconic in our culture for one reason or another, but beautifully establishes what Bride Fuller is trying to do with the series. The series is not called Red Dragon. The series may be about Will Graham, but the series is called Hannibal, and this is what Hannibal is. Is he even quite human, it's almost to that point of bringing the iconographic imagery to a point of, like, absurdity. It's incredible. I
0: don't
2: know. And I think his performance is amazing.
0: Yeah, and my familiarity with Mass as an actor wasn't extensive before coming to this, and so it was like, oh, well, that was the guy who was in the, the recent James Bond films. And seeing him in this episode and hearing him in particular was a bit um, – not disconcerting, but difficult to adapt to. For one, I think when I first watched this, the accent was hard to understand, um, which made some of his very heightened dialogue – um, maybe not land as well as it ought to have. But by the end of the episode, his interpretation of this character was so, it seemed amused, quietly amused by everything going on around him. So, for instance, just him casually walking out of the car at the end, seeing Mrs. Hobbs on the ground, kind of casually strolling into the house. He's observing, taking in, and... I ended up being incredibly compelled by that by the end of the episode. Um, but let's move on to one of the other central characters here who is Jack Crawford portrayed by Lawrence Fishburne, who throughout the episode keeps wanting Will Graham to get closer to this, uh, Minnesota strike case. And yet seems to be very aware with the, uh, the added effect of Alana Bloom saying that this should not be happening. Um, that it's going to have some kind of toll on will graham and you know he asks what kind of crazy is he with regards to the the person that they're hunting he wants answers and gets frustrated when he does not have them which brings up a rather hilarious scene which i'm sure we'll talk about later um but but his frustration is there with his need to understand justine what did you think of this character and your first first impressions of, of Fishburne in this role?
2: Well, one, I was very excited to actually see Lawrence Fishburne on a television series. So that was literally my first thought. I am such a huge fan of him as an actor. I think he's so compelling and so interesting to watch. Um, I think it's it's generally a very interesting role because um, it's, it's an authority figure. It's a cop, but it's the FBI. And FBI-style cops or investigators are always like a little more interesting than the CSI variety because there's a little more nuance. They're bigger cases. They're more mysterious. It's kind of this outside entity that exists in service of the government and yet somehow a part of, like, a uh, separated from it. Um, and I think Jack Crawford is is presented as someone who, as you kind of implied, um, and I think. Again, Lawrence Fishburne does such an incredible job at kind of evoking this sort of desire to categorize the world in black and white, like sane, insane, bad, good, in spite of the fact that that's really not how things work. They don't make him out to be an idiot. He's clearly an extremely intelligent person, but it's 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 something that plagues him, and you feel this kind of anxiety to the fact that he can't immediately figure things out. That it's it's not obvious, or it's not simple. It's, he's Again, he's very smart, so he understands that's not how the world works, but it's still this kind of implicit desire to make the world controlled, which he cannot do.
0: Of the three roles that I wanted to bring up right now, Lawrence Fishburne is probably the biggest name in the smallest of the three. Kate, do you think he's at all taking over intentionally or unintentionally in this episode or does he fall into this supporting role rather well
1: i think he falls into his role and to his uh i think the character falls into his sort of supporting role very well in this pilot and uh, i think it's maybe for some he's too big or he's too commanding um, not out of the size of the role, but out of the ca- the personality of the character, and that's what I really enjoy about Jack specifically in this pilot, but in general, he counterbalances Hannibal and Will incredibly well. He's the the they're all passionate people, but he's the the most uh, straightforwardly uh, commanding person of of the the various characters that we have. He's by far the most uh, bombastic, and he. He he's a bulldog. He says he's very intelligent. He can be sly when he needs to. We certainly see that at various points over the course of the season, but he's also direct in a way that nobody else on the show is, and I really appreciate that and what Lawrence Fishman brings to that, the way he brings that out in, again, we'll talk about it later, but in one of the most entertaining bathroom scenes I've seen. Um, so, so So I think actually he works really well in, in this role. And I particularly enjoy the like like you said, Justine, just how smart they make him and how canny they make him because having him talk to sit down and talk with Lecter and refer to himself as a layman on this topic when he runs an institute in it, because he, he just he, having him be aware of how little he knows, particularly in relation to somebody like Hannibal, is it tells you a lot about the character. It's not going to be the 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 brash captain who wants results, um, who thinks he knows more than he does. It's going to be a different sort of leader. And I really appreciate that.
0: Would you agree with that, Ricky, that he kind of fits the archetype of the police leader, but in a way that doesn't feel too stale?
3: I think and I'm going based on my first impressions here, not based on my impressions after watching two full seasons. When I first watched the pilot, I was just blown away by his performance. I absolutely loved him in the pilot, and I still love his performance as Jack Crawford. I think he's one of the highlights of the series. What I do love about his character is he's very professional, he's very much in command, he's very careful, but yet he takes chances. He'll do things that are are out of the norm, you know, like he he hires Will Graham despite knowing his condition to help him in finding a serial killer. He takes the chance. He knows about Will Graham. So he's doing things that are un- unconventional, untraditional, right? And like, I mean, there's been a lot of great uh, portrayals of this character. Like we think of Dennis Farina in Manhunter and Scott Glenn in Science of the Lambs and Harry Cartel in Red Dragon. But uh, there's just something about him in this, in this series that I think he makes the best Jack Crawford. Like it, he, he, it just feels natural and genuine and it breaks the overall serious tone of the story. Like there's just something about Jack Crawford in specifically in a pilot where he just brings a certain amount of, I don't know, realism, levity. Like he just, you feel at ease with him. Like if he was my boss, I would be so happy. He was my boss because he can be very, demanding and forceful and scary you know he's a big man and he can take charge but he also makes you feel safe and that's the thing about his character like watching the series because I'm a huge fan of Hugh Dancy and Hugh Dancy's Will Graham and just knowing that Jack Crawford is the man who's sort of watching over and watching his back that kind of made me feel safe as a viewer if that sound I don't know if that sounds corny and I mean I'm sorry but the best at the best moment of the episode, the episode's highlight, is the confrontation between Will Graham and Jack, Jack Crawford, which takes place in The Washroom, which is, cle- which is clearly a nod to The Shining. And it's not just because of the set design and the red the red colors and referencing back to a Stanley Kubrick film. It's because of the dialogue between them and the, the chemistry between those two actors and the way they delivered our line. So to me, again, first-time impression, watching... The episode, he was by far the biggest surprise.
1: The other thing I would add to that, and we've kind of said this already, but this is a show where one of the main characters is Hannibal Lecter, who is like the definition of inscrutable, ninety-five like percent of the time. Even just think of that first shot; he doesn't, he doesn't smile. He doesn't really. He's just you can't really read him. Um, and and then Will is. For a lot of times, you know, you're not quite sure exactly where he's coming from. Particularly those who have seen more of the show will, you know, there's stuff coming that makes it hard to know where he's necessarily coming from. But you always, you know, in this pilot, in much of this first season, you know where Jack's coming from. You can you can rely on that. And like you said, Ricky, it makes you um, feel more secure as a viewer. That you he, Brian Fuller gets your trust through Jack, and that is an important thing. It does. It's not silly at all. It's an important thing when you're watching a show.
3: Well, and also because he is in charge, but he still makes the effort to ask Dr. Alana Bloom about Will Grant, about his gifts, about his condition. Like he he's always seeking advice. He respects his colleagues and he might have his mind made up, but he's willing to listen to your feedback and your opinion. And we we get it right away from the first episode.
0: Well, Let's move on to Will Graham then, and Kate, uh, we'll begin with you for first impressions on Hugh Dancy's take on this character, and one thing I would point to is that we are immediately told where he lands on the autism spectrum. He addresses this in his conversation with Jack, and a lot of TV series uh, maybe skirt around this issue sometimes, or postpone it for some reason, some narrative reason um but it's very upfront here and some of those signs I think are clearly exhibited but what were your first impressions of this character and this actor
1: I mean I'm going to sound like a broken record here but I was I was immediately engaged uh my <laughs> going into the show I only knew Hugh Dancy as that guy that British guy who gets cast to be prince charming type people a lot um I didn't know that he was a very talented actor and I was glad to discover that over the course of the series but you know the 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 structuring of this pilot I think is very intelligent and having it begin where it begins and how it begins immediately puts you uh, face-to-face with Will Graham and tells you, you think you know what the show's going to be, but no, this show's going to be just as much about Will Graham, and here he is, and isn't he interesting? And isn't, look what he can do, but look what that also means about him. And I really appreciate the care that they give that character, both uh, Dancy and then also, of course, the you know, Brian Fuller for writing it. But uh, but no, I was immediately engaged by the character. And as for the uh yeah as for that exchange about his autism or level you know where he exactly he is on the spectrum that's something that you know i i really appreciated actually in this pilot i have an uncle who's autistic and depictions of autism on tv almost never you know anywhere on the spectrum that is almost never feel genuine and uh it's it's a particular pet peeve of mine. But I particularly would point to that conversation we get between Will and Hannibal about eyes. Because eye contact is, is a significant thing for, for a lot of people who are autistic. It's it's something that you you don't see a lot of shows care about or pay attention to. So I actually really appreciated that in this pilot. Whether that holds true for much longer in the show is a different conversation. <laughs> but in this episode, I really liked it.
0: His performance, there's nothing about his performance I see in this pilot that seems um, manipulative or, I guess, untrue. It's very, like you said, genuine. It's very, to me, it seems accurate. And it's a big part of why the whole thing works. Because he is essentially the main character of this pilot. And... Ricky, I know you're a big fan of Dancy's work in this role. Was that immediate? Did you get that sense right from the get-go here?
3: Right away. Right away. I love this performance. I love this character. Um, Like Brian Fowler makes a change to the protagonist from the original source material, and I think the change is for the better. I mean, I just love the way he keeps company with stray dogs he rescues from the streets and how he lives alone and how he just feels like such a lonely soul. And you sympathize for this man and you do realize that he struggles with his conditions and his gift, if you want to call it a gift or a curse, but he's a social outcast. But yet he's the kind of person that you can easily see yourself wanting to become best friends with. Uh, or wanting to be around, like, he just feels like a really, really good person in this in this first episode in the pilot. And you can see how he's clearly haunted by traumatic events from his past, and also t- haunted by, again, his gift slash curse, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, just the way it opens up when we get to see him reconstruct the killings he's trying to solve, like, the episode opens up where, if you're not familiar with the source material, you're going to think that he's actually the killer. Because it opens up where he is the killer. Like, we see him taking a point of view of the killer. And that is – that that feeling I had watching the episode for the first time, it caught me off guard. You know, it's like taking a character that I know pretty well from reading some of the books and watching a lot of the big screen adaptations and watching that character in the scene in which he's killing someone. You know what I mean? That, to me, was the first brilliant decision that Brian Fuller and his team made. Um, but I just feel like even just based on this one episode, the pilot, we can see how he feeds on the emotions of people. And that means he feeds on the negative emotions of people, such as fear, anger and frustration. And so he's he's like an emo- emotional sponge and he's hyper attuned to what everyone's feeling. And I can't imagine like being like Will Graham. Like, I think it would drive me insane. Like, I think you got to be not only extremely intelligent not only in complete control of yourself when you have the, these feelings but you got to be strong and have like you know a really strong powerful will and um i don't know it's just something about him like you sympathize for his character so much you get to love his character and it helps that he his performance is just fantastic it's unbelievable and the thing is like you know we said at least three or four times since we started a podcast, the show's called Hannibal. The main character is supposed to be Hannibal, but for me, the show's always been about Will Graham. Like, yeah, it's about Will Graham's relationship with Hannibal. It's about how Hannibal affects everybody's lives, but it's really about Will Graham. To me, he's always been front and center, and he's the reason why I think I kept watching, at least for, like, the first three or four episodes, until I realized that, you know, Will Graham or not, this is a fantastic show, because everything about the show is almost pitch perfect, but Will Graham was the hook and bait for me
0: you mentioned the fear that he experiences and that's also the the key characteristic that both alana and jack key in on as one of his driving forces uh, and that comes from his understanding you also say that he's an incredibly or that he's a purely empathetic character and that's mm-hmm. something for you to, to sympathize with justine do you also sympathize with him does he make a compelling main character for this series
2: i think he very much does um and kind of touching on what ricky was saying it's interesting how much and yet how little they change about will graham and the adaptation um i mean in the in the book, he has a family he has a wife he has an adopted son mm. and here he is literally alone he lives with the his stray dog um i think brian fuller constructs graham in a very um i, I like i want to say a Spiritually close version to what Will is, and kind of working from the foundations. Um, the fear, um, and what they say um, in one of the early passages is that fear is the price of imagination, and that's what Will experiences on a daily basis. It's his, it's the fear and the imagination that haunt him, and that make it so difficult for him to do his job. What I really love about the performance that Hugh Dancy does is it is very nuanced. It's very uh, reflective and a lot of it relies so much on these moments of silence and this kind of con- it's this kind of battle between trying to understand what's happening and yet feeling everything that's happening and his approach to the performance that I love is that he always has his backup. like he doesn't he wants to trust people but he knows what we are what humanity is capable of and he knows that he's been used before that he's been abused because of his gift unknowingly because he trusted people and you have that sense in everything he does he he's very quick to be aggressive or very quick to be like no I'm not like that or no I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. and it's, it's this interesting kind of dynamic that he brings to the role <laughs>
1: I think that's fun because for me that's very I would absolutely agree and that's so wonderfully put my note was, oh, Will's kind of bitchy in this episode.
3: <laughs> yeah, he is, but you know what? I wanted to specifically point out the scene in which he tells the teenage girl's dad to hold the cat before they go into the bedroom to inspect the evidence. Like, you know what I mean? He's so socially awkward. He doesn't like the fact that he's so close to him, like he's in his bubble, and he doesn't even want him in the room, and then he realizes, well, it's her dad, so I guess I have to be polite. Just hold the cat. You know what I mean? Like, it was just such an awkward delivery, but it, it, this episode did have its, its you know, touch of humor, which is rare for a Hannibal episode.
2: What I was going to say kind of building off of uh, the moment that you just just described, Ricky, is that I read, like, they don't, it's not exactly the same in the book, but you have a similar passage where uh, Will is kind of fixated on the cat. Yep. But he's talking only to Jack Crawford in, like, the <laughs> FBI headquarters. So it's not really that awkward.
3: No, but... Like, and just
2: you- the idea that... Brian, Brian Fuller recontextualizes that and brings it into that family home, in that moment of, like, complete trauma. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pure genius, and I think it speaks to exactly what Brian Fuller is doing and the difference between a novel, for example, and television or cinema. It's recontextualizing for emotional effects, and it's, like, it's fucking awesome.
3: Well, well correct me if I'm wrong, but when he first meets Jack Crawford and Jack basically hires him... Doesn't the scene end where he's like, oh, this is going to be weird because now I'm going to be forced to be social? Like, that's what he says to Jack Crawford. Like He's not used to being social. Like, yeah, he's a professor, but he stands in front of a classroom. He doesn't actually interact with, with his students one-on-one, maybe once in a while, but he tries to even avoid interacting with anyone one-on-one.
1: The last thing I, I'll say about Will for now is and we've touched on it but again I want to emphasize as somebody who does get very frustrated at depictions of people on, on the spectrum uh, the, the moment with the with the cat I think works well I saw that more as like, him wanting to try to help or comfort the the dad but I, it's fun I'm going to have to watch it again now thinking of it as, as a comedy beat but it, he's not a magical uh, magical autistic, autistic person <laughs> TV loves the magical autistic person or, or some you know They have a personality trait that makes them, you know, see the world in a different way and, oh, isn't it adorable and quirky and cute and they'll get into hijinks and solve crimes. There is a very palpable uh, sense of the cost Mm -hmm. of his of his gift or his curse as you said ricky and the fact that the show makes him the killer it shows you the trauma it's traumatizing to watch it to watch him be the one doing these things and if it's traumatizing for us to watch him do it how how terrible must it be for him to experience that and this is the first time i've ever seen a show depict profiling or depict putting you know one of these characters putting themselves in the killer's mind in anything approaching an effective manner
3: well that's why hugh dancy is something of a revelation because this version of will graham defies classification because we spend so much time in his point of view in different ways in his point of view that the actor himself is re- required to express his emotions mostly without dialogue and a lot of it has to do with the visuals the beautiful visuals we get but also has to do with his quiet performance his eyes his facial expressions, and so to me, his portrayal of Detective Will Graham is always riveting. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, and some of those details that stick out to me in the the first sequence where he's reenacting this crime and notices that the shot paralyzes the woman, and then Hugh Dancy's voice drops noticeably, and then he says, it "Just means she can't do anything about it," as if like that realization is totally sinks into his bones, and it's little stuff like that that I think really works. Kate, you just mentioned the the trauma that comes with watching some of what he has to go through, and, and uh, I know we spent a lot of time on these characters. I have a, a couple more questions before we move on to some of the recurring segments, and that's fine if we run a little bit over, um, but that brings up violence in this series and specifically in this pilot. Uh, Justine, how how does violence, and and that can mean both the act itself and the impressions that it leaves on its characters, uh, function in this premiere? And is that different from kind of the usual stuff that we see on television?
2: Um, Well, I mean, I don't know if the pilot fully sets up for where the series ends up going for the violence. Um, It's definitely there, but it's just like the scratch of the surface. Um, I do think that you have a sense that the violence as experienced through the show um, is seen through the eye of the macabre. It's seen less as kind of an action set piece, again, reinforcing the horror elements. Um, even shows like CSI, I find a lot of the horrific elements or the violent elements, it's it, it's really action-y. Here, it's a lot darker. It's a lot more internalized. You really feel the, that it's kind of like an expulsion of, Like hatred and these like, or desire, or these feelings, rather than this kind of revenge or these ideas of um, violence as a means of attaining like goods or attaining uh, equality. It's it's very cerebral. It's a very cerebral interpretation, um, as well as kind of presenting. I guess less so in the pilot, but it presents kind of this idea of this heightened world where violence is almost a form of art like a very a perverse version of what an artist might do and I think like that's a very disturbing if not interesting idea and I think it does somewhat play from Red Dragon and Red Dragon but it's, it's like a dark it just it's just dark I don't know how else to say it kind of gets really under your skin more so than most television violence I don't think it's glorified in any sense in spite of the fact it might be beautiful um, it just feels
0: wrong. And like, like, you, yeah, like you said, uh, this is going to become more evident as we go along. And I'm sure that Kate and I will attempt to unpack that over the season, but it's something that I think should be on the mind this early at this point, because there is something there to it that I think is unique to this series in, in context with television in general. Uh, Kate, I wanted to ask you, about an exchange between uh, Will and Hannibal in this episode in which uh, Hannibal says that he believes Jack thinks of Will as fine china, uh, used for specific guests. And then Will asks Hannibal, well, what do you think of me? And he puts it in the context of the parable of the, the mongoose and the snake. And he says he thinks of Will as the mongoose that went under the house As the snake slithered by and in the parable, the mongoose is the thing that steps up and protects the sleeping child when the snake enters the house. What does this observation say immediately to you about this relationship, or at least how Hannibal perceives the relationship right now?
1: Well, I mean, right off the bat, it tells you there's going to be a lot of talking, (laughs) a lot of talking around things and a lot of imagery and a lot of uh, metaphor. And it's also going to be very, very fun, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, at least because I love that stuff. But uh, it, it, it's very. I think it's perceptive, and I mean that's that's out of uh, Ricky Tabi, Yes, I love. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ricky Tiki, Ricky Tabi. It was one of my favorite stories growing up, and so to have Will placed in that role is particularly fun for me because uh, I have that association. But it tells you, uh, you know, I I, I think especially and it's really hard to talk about that exchange without putting it into the context of stuff we that we know will come later so we'll talk about it more when we get to the end of the podcast in the spoiler section but specifically from this episode um it it shows that that Hannibal is perceptive but I also you also can't necessarily trust everything he says because he also may be trying to flatter or trying to tell will what he thinks how he thinks will sees himself it's it's a very it, it is a answer of how you know how do you see me it's an answer that allows him to avoid actually giving a direct answer it's it's both a very specific reference and a specific answer and also a vague one that allows a lot of interpretation. And so I think in that way, that sort of doublespeak is perfect for Hannibal. And uh, as for their relationship, it's fun to think about the various imagery and who is yeah. whom and when.
0: It, it certainly is. And I think that that subtle quality to it is great because it, it probably just works into the subconscious. And I think of it, uh, that identification as the mongoose who kind of flees as a way, maybe a very subtle and small way of putting it into will's head that he's not as powerful as he might think he is and so maybe that gives hannibal maybe an upper hand in in the power position but that's something that we'll probably come across in future episodes ricky earlier in the podcast you talked about um how jack and and will had not met i just wanted to make a, a small correction there that they, they mentioned very briefly that they had met very briefly when um, the – I think it was the Evil Minds Museum. I don't know the, the exact title of it, but yeah. that, that that had been kind of a, a not great first encounter. But this is seems to be like their actual first conversation. Um, and other characters we find out have met each other as well. Will has met Alana, and Alana has met Hannibal. And, and just as a device, do you prefer – Uh, this method of characters, I guess, getting to know each other off screen? Or would you rather rather have them kind of meeting each other in this pilot for the first time?
3: No, I prefer this method because it doesn't really matter how Alana met Hannibal or how Hannibal met Jack Crawford, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually, I guess in this episode, he meets Jack Crawford for the first time. But I think what's really important is how Will Graham meets Jack wait, no, that doesn't make sense. What's really important is how Bill Graham meets Hannibal Lecter for the first time. I mean, because the series revolves around these two characters. So it did not bug me at all. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's it's a small thing to kind of think about uh, coming into a series kind of in mid threads threads.
3: It's also kind of important to realize that it is a small world. Like when you do work in a field, like even if You know, it doesn't matter what field you work in, chances are you're going to know someone through someone or heard of someone. Like, I mean, the first time Beverly meets Will Graham in this episode, she walks in and it's like she's starstruck. Like, she's like, oh my God, you're Will Graham. I've heard all about you. Like, she knows who he is, you know? So I kind of like that. I like the way we quickly get introduced into this world and realize how everyone can easily know who everybody is and realize that they do have some kind of like tie and connection to a third party, or what have you.
0: All right, so those are some of the more general things I wanted to talk about with this pilot, and uh, I think our recurring segments now, we'll kind of get into the more specifics, and we'll begin with the glorious return of Kate's Classical Corner. Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring and aperitif?
1: Woohoo. hoo uh, Well, first of all, anybody who listened to our podcast last year for this second season will not be surprised to hear me say that the only classical piece used in this episode is of course Box Goldberg Variations, the aria from that, which is very prominently featured as we meet Hannibal for the first time as we first see him. For those unfamiliar uh, who are just tuning in for the first time, that is the music that's featured in Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal uh, in a memorable scene in Silence of the Lambs I'll just say it like that, involving Hannibal in case people want to see that and haven't seen it yet um and it's used at very specific points over the course of the series, and so we'll talk about that as we get to them but uh that is one of the pieces that is that is used that is the piece that is used in this episode uh, a piece of classical music and the as for the rest of the scoring, it really is after watching the the show and then coming back after having seen the second season and watching the pilot there the scoring really does go on a journey uh, before you know over the course of these two seasons and uh, this there's some elements here that are immediately very familiar and that that is the sound of the show the opening scene which has that uh that that projection i if you if you will from from will sounds immediately very much the the sort of sound world of the series i really appreciate the 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 per- very light percussion that's giving the sort of crackling sound uh sounds almost like static or white noise uh, during the projection the opening uh scene also there's there's an immediate energy to it and again this is so important as this is the very first scene of the show but there's these these running eighth notes that continue throughout the projection and and really push it forward there's uh, a minimalist pattern to the the notes are minimalist and that's a type of music that has a lot of repetition and sort of lulls you into a sense of uh comfort with a piece so that you don't necessarily notice when it starts to change and shift and morph and all of a sudden you you realize that it's become something else entirely and you you may have missed when that happened um so so it's obviously nowhere near the length of a minimalist piece but you know we have this recurring repetitious um, a motive in the in the scoring that lulls you a bit into a sense of you know of ease and just sort of makes you lose track of the the music a little bit, um, and that's as Will is walking backwards in in his projection. So as he is getting into the the mind of of the killer, there as the listener, you're being eased into that same lull. I really appreciate that. Again, this is all probably overanalyzing but this is what i i hear when i listen to the music
3: can i can i ask you a question yeah so it's because you you focus a lot on the opening sequence which which i agree is fantastic because it's a great way to introduce viewers to not only the visuals but the sound design and the score but in that opening scene i mean i'm not an expert in music but it felt like like there's a lot of percussions we do get that like lightsaber sound you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but it felt like they actually played the music backwards Okay. like they composed a piece of music but they played it backwards
1: okay what uh what makes you feel that what how just, are just
3: you... listen just listening to it like listen to it without watching the actual screen it feels like someone's playing it backwards it's like when you're a dj you know and they they, mm-hmm. they scratch it's like they're rewinding the record backwards i don't know maybe maybe it's just composed that way but i could swear that they composed music and ran it backwards
1: they could have done that and i'll have to watch it again with that in mind i cuz i don't ever really think of that because i don't do any you know <laughs> So don't do any DJing, but um, <laughs> so I always think of it as you know from the perspective of an orchestral musician. Um, but yeah, that easily could be some a technique that well, they use. Well,
3: because the reason why I ask you is because I mean we we always talk about how great the the composer is each and every single week. He just I mean especially in the last episode of season two, which we won't talk about, but the score is just brilliant. But I just I'm trying to figure out if that is a score that he could compose or if it's just a matter of, we should also be giving more credit to the sound designers like the editors.
1: Well, yes, so. but if you're running the music, I mean Is I it, guess like, it would depend it would depend on yeah that and that's where it gets murky if who picks when there's a classical music like Goldberg variations uh, piece, who decides that that's the piece that they use and i I honestly, I don't know, and I've talked uh. to composers about this <laughs> for t v shows, and nobody's given me a clear answer that I could take I hope to corner some composers at Comic-Con this year and get a straight answer on that Um, but yes that that is certainly an element that could easily be part of it as well so if I get to talk to Brian Reitzel I don't know if I will but if if somehow that happens at Comic-Con I'll have to ask him because that's a great question Um, there's also a lot of buzzing that I appreciate when we have the the victim I forget her name unfortunately um, and we get the projection of her hanging up and he's visualizing her and that there's a buzzing to the scoring that I really appreciate it sounds like insects over hovering over a corpse it's, there's a lot of imagery to to the scoring there then when we're out in the field there's wind chimes which is some, i don't really remember them using that very much but of course it's an open field it feels you know you can feel the air with for the birds and so to have that in the scoring works really well We also, of course, get Will's Happy Place music, which is when he meets Winston. When he finds Winston, it's sort of transitional from the airplane to Winston to the house. Um, But it's very simple piano scoring, which can contrast starkly with the opening scene music or his, you know, very percussion-heavy music that we get earlier. And then also, I really appreciate the recurring motif of the heartbeat that's in the scoring uh, throughout all of the projections and in other key moments as well. It's as you listen even if you're not aware of it your heart beats start slowing down to match that's why composers use that because it's very it's very effective it's very evocative and so i really appreciate that as will gets further and further into his projection the heartbeat slows down and he calms himself and that's why when when beverly shows up it's particularly jarring i think they do a really good job there with the the way that's filmed but also with the music to really put you in will's headspace but the other, the last thing I'll mention is that heartbeat, and it's it's gonna be fun to chart the
2: progress. Are you sure it's a heartbeat though? Because there's also the pendulum. The pendulum is figures heavily in the opening sequence as a kind of uh, temporal as well as the editing shift.
1: Yeah, it's, but for me, that that whenever you have that one more or less, yeah. it's a heartbeat. And so to to pair them like that, like you said, works is really effective.
2: Yeah, it's, they kind of tie the idea of emotion with the perception of time, the kind of visceral reaction. It's its really interesting.
0: Boom! Kate's Classical Corner. Done. We're going to move on to the second of our recurring segments, which is the devil in the details. And Justine has already stolen one of Kate's, so it's bad blood from the get-go. Um, I think for time's sake, what we'll do is we'll go once around, so pick your most important devil that is in these details. And, uh, and then we'll go around one more time and you can do probably two more um, just so we can get through this a little quicker. Uh, I'll begin by saying that the moments in which Jack is putting – when he first meets him in the lecture hall, he, he pushes Will's glasses back onto his face. There's so much uh, intimacy in that movement and that action that works really well and kind of saying something about Jack's character that's – That's rather interesting. So that was my first one. Uh, We'll go Justine next.
2: Can I stick with my perception of the pomegranate? I really don't. Okay. Well, I wanted to expand on that because I did just. The only thing I mentioned was that it was the um, it's the fruit of the dead, and it's the fruit of the dead because it is a reference to Greek mythology. Um, it is the idea that it's when Hades had kidnapped Persephone, who is the daughter of Spring, to make her. His bride, but if she did not eat anything, she would not be forced to live there. However, she ate six pomegranate seeds, and so she had to spend six months there, so there was winter. So that's, it's a sad fruit. Delicious. It's very, but sad. Yeah,
0: very sad. Very uh, sad. Kate.
2: The, if I can have
1: one main one, it's got to be this uh, Hannibal's clothes are wrong in this. They're just, they're wrong. And <laughs> it was very odd to see him in like, a sort of rumpled uh, button-down shirt with just like a, a sweater a thin sweater there's no tie there's no suit this Hannibal Lecter does not wear brass buttons on the outside of his tan jacket or is what is it blue or whatever it is it was very it was very odd so they definitely shifted the some of the clothing but specifically Hannibal's suits quite a bit from this pilot to, to what we got later. So it was, it was very odd for me to see him lounging around in a button down shirt with a thin sweater over it. It was, was that just me? No,
0: no, no. That it, there were some odd wardrobe choices. I thought, uh, colors and also styles. So no, you're you're dead on, uh, Ricky, any details that stood out to you?
3: Um, so do you mean like Easter eggs or just anything in general?
0: Uh, any little thing, whether that's uh, – I know Kate does the kind of classical music breakdown, but if there's another sound cue or a visual cue or maybe a line of dialogue that you thought was funny or interesting in some way, anything well, small.
3: Well, I've noted how Brian Fuller recreated The Washroom from The Shining in this episode, which I thought was fantastic. I think my favorite visual image, like my favorite image of this pilot is when Will Graham wakes up and the teenage girl is lying dead next to him and she sort of rises and floats into a dark sky and then he wakes up and then we get the image of the stag at the end of the episode uh watching it again it was i was so impressed as to how many of these things that these 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 reoccurring motifs actually appear in the first episode in the pilot episode like for example the stag and the way he has nightmares. And, um, and but I think in terms of uh, really getting an understanding of Will Graham's personality, I have to go back to the scene with the cat. The scene with the cat, to me, was the scene that sticks out. Like, it, it was just one of those scenes, like, I have to wonder if it was improvised and not actually written in the teleplay. You know what I mean? And my favorite moment of the episode is, of course, the first appearance of Winston, because Winston's the best. And when he picks up Winston, I just loved it. I loved the image of the dog, running down the highway, how he quickly notices Winston, he takes him home, and then we get the image of him on the porch sitting with his, like, 13 or 14 dogs. So those are the highlights for me.
0: Uh, Just a couple other little things for me. We just finished Fargo on FX, and we spent some time in Duluth, Minnesota, in this series as well, which I had not remembered, and that was kind of fun on the, the meta TV level. And then the other thing was that the password for the, the first victim's security system was tea kettle, And without going into anything spoilery, um, it's mentioned in this episode that Will is likened to a teacup, and that is another recurring thing. Ricky, you mentioned the stag, and, and teacups and tea are things that appear in Hannibal as we go further. So um, anything and, else?
3: And tissue and uh birds is it crows or ravens ravens it's ravens right yeah
1: well and the the other thing i'll mention there there's a lot of little fun details we could pick apart but you know we'd be here all day so the other thing i'm going to mention um is we get our recurring themes we get our first water and blood imagery in that bathroom scene and then sean you broke me it's your fault I now hear whenever somebody says half of a sentence on this show I hear it and it irks me <laughs> and that's all your fault
3: <laughs> it's
0: weird right where they like omit either the subject or something yeah. it's strange
1: and I think that's gotta be a quirk of Brian Fuller's writing because I was started noting which characters did that and I didn't really hear much of Will doing that but Jack does it Hannibal does it like pretty much everybody does that and it's it's you know when you start to hear it when you when somebody Sean breaks the glass and you start listening for it it's everywhere on this show and it's probably the only thing that bothers me about this pilot. Ah. Ah, ha, ha. Well played, sir. Uh,
3: when did we get the image of the water and the blood? Because I know I know we do get the shower scene in which Will Graham is showering and that, uh, and then we get to dissolve to the stag. But I do not recall the image of blood and water.
1: Will has his head, he's sort of dunking his head in yeah. the the sink, and then it turns to, bl- like, red. It, the water and the liquid all swirls and turns red, and then he pulls his head up, and it's, you know, just in his mind or something.
3: Okay. Yeah, this is right before. Oh, Joe right, James right, yes. Yeah. You're correct.
1: How can we not mention that? That was my other,
2: Use the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> the best line ever.
0: Also, right before that, as soon as he walks in, he's like, "What are you doing in here?" And Will says, "I enjoy the smell of urinal cake." <laughs> that that whole exchange was great.
1: Absolutely, probably my favorite. Like you said, Ricky, it's the most fun and the best scene probably in this
0: pilot. All right. So, um, Justine, did you have any other details, or should we move on?
2: Uh, nothing springs to
0: mind. All right. Let's move on to the final recurring segment and the newest recurring segment. This is our design: spoiled meat. So this is kind of just open floor to talk about uh, things that we noticed in this episode that you know piqued our interest in terms of things that come later. And uh, Kate, you mentioned already the the blood and water imagery that immediately made me think of the podcast that we did with Todd VanderWerf, where he christened the character Sinkface. That's <laughs> I think that's the first instance of Sinkface in Hannibal, and it's right from the very beginning. So that was a lot of fun.
1: Can we just talk about that teacup line? Cuz it expl- when you when you first tweeted at me, I had I hadn't uh actually rewatched the episode yet, and your your tweet exploded my brain and then watching the episode and seeing Hannibal basically call uh Will a teacup by proxy with what we got in this you know, the finale or this the end of last season, it, I mean, it was amazing. It was awesome.
3: Yeah, I think when season 1 finished i think i was on the podcast right kate not not this podcast but the televerse podcast we discussed it and i remember saying that if we go back and watch the whole entire season over again we're gonna notice a gazillion things in each episode and we're gonna have our minds blown it's unbelievable like just watching this episode i'm just blown away the first thing i'm gonna do tomorrow kate is i'm gonna go buy the blu-ray all of season one and i'm gonna watch it entirely again like it's just fantastic, and and also again, like I completely forgot about little things, like little things, like yeah, it's the first time Beverly met Will Graham, and just seeing Beverly Katz back on the screen, like it was great, you know.
0: Uh, seeing anything pop out in terms of future Hannibal stuff?
2: Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. I think for me, maybe it's just because what's fresh on my mind. Like I literally finished Red Dragon yesterday that the comparisons that my mind is making are kind of right to the source material rather than what's coming up ahead. Um, I suppose the kind of, the the use of the way that they kind of present Hannibal's relationship with food, like kind of that hint and that like you, because he's such an iconic familiar character, I would be surprised how many people are watching the show who have no idea that he's Hannibal the cannibal. Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
2: just how they kind of treat that in the
3: pilot. There's also the scene in which Hannibal meets Jack Crawford. I don't know if it was sort of first time. I think it was the first time in the episode. And he's standing next to Hannibal. And right away, he notices his designs, like his, his, um, his illustrations. But then we also see Hannibal sharpening the pencil. And it looks like he's going to stab Jack Crawford. And that's exactly what happens later on in season two in the final episode. And like I remember watching the pilot for the first time and thinking, and I swear to God, I thought this. I thought he was gonna stab him with a pencil in the neck. <laughs> like, so <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I, I kind of wonder how much of it they had already thought of prior, or or does does Brian Fuller and his crew rewatch episodes and try to incorporate all these little things into future episodes? I don't know. Because if this is already thought of you know, this is his master plan from the get-go, like these little details, then this guy's a genius. If he's going back and watching the episodes, which, which is what I'm sure they are doing, and trying to find, an, and they are trying to find ways to incorporate these little things into future episodes, then, I mean, still, it's it's just, it's genius. It's genius screenwriting and it's amazing.
1: Well, you know, I don't find you that interesting. You will. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. There was that. Oh, end. great. Um, what, what did you just say, Ricky, that reminded me of Shit. Okay, I forgot. Potential, but
1: uh, the pictures thing was very Miriam. Last is that what you mean?
0: No, okay. It was just that uh, it, having the idea implanted that, that Hannibal would be in a position to attack uh, Jack like that, and then obviously in in the very last podcast that we did, um, Kate drew on all the parallels between the the Hob sequence at the end of this episode and then what we get in the season two finale. And just to see Will witness Abigail's throat being slit in this episode and to know where we're going to end up at the end of season two is just brutal, absolutely brutal. And I imagine that's probably a case of going back and picking out specific details of that. I can't imagine though, that that whole teacup thing was something that (laughs) Fuller was actively thinking about and, would come back to later. That had to have been by accident. Otherwise, oh, no. I Because that's up. a line from the book. That specific one?
1: The teacup thing. Yeah, isn't that...
3: It comes from the the novel. I don't even remember
0: that. but.
1: So they, they might not have been intending to use it as they did in the second season when they used it here, but I mean, it's imagery that's from the source material, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Whatever the case is, Fuller is very meticulous and very intelligent. And so it's, it's made going back and watching this so enjoyable.
3: Also the final image, the final image of this episode is Will Graham walks into the hospital room to go visit Abigail Hobbs and who's sitting next to her holding her hand. It's Hannibal. And then Will sits next to Abigail Hobbs and the family is reunited or not reunited but I guess reunited for the first time. You know what I mean? And then you think mm-hmm. about the last episode of season two and how Hannibal so desperately wants to have a family with Abigail Hobbs and Will Graham. I mean, it started in this very first episode. The last scene, it ends with Hannibal holding her hand and Will Graham coming in to hold her right hand. You know what I mean? And whatever. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's 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 absolutely, it's great. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. I'm so glad. And you know what? I'm glad we're doing it in this order too. See, after having seen season two going back to season one it makes it so much more fun
2: mm-hmm. uh, be-
1: before we wrap up i did have one question because i'm not sure if i saw this um and so i wanted to ask you guys about it in this section when we first are introduced to hannibal he I, I feel does he break the fourth wall i feel like he looks right at the very end he looks in the camera and that's the that's if if that's the case if i didn't make that up this that's the only time i can think of in the entire series where they do break the fourth wall
0: I did not notice that, and I think I was paying close attention, but I'd have to go back and watch it again, but I, I didn't pick that up.
2: Okay. I didn't either, but maybe our listeners can go watch and let us know what they think.
0: And then either Kate can be absolutely right or absolutely wrong.
1: Yes, there's only one answer, and it has to be absolute. It can't, you know. Honestly, I probably made it up, but uh, I did. I watched it a couple times. Thought I noticed something and I
3: I watched it again. No, wait, Kate. You are right. Are you talking about the scene? Because it's the first scene of Hannibal in this episode when, like, we get a shot of him eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he does. He looks straight into the camera for like a good thirty-five seconds, and then it, it fades to black. Like, we get a shot of Hannibal eating. The camera pans up to his face he looks he's looking at the camera off to the
1: side though he,
3: he looks off to the side and then he turns his head and he looks into the camera he's looking at us for a good 35 seconds and it fades to black and then he has his first therapy session well not his therapy session but his first client
1: mm-hmm. with the, the uh, awesome dan Fogler.
3: exactly yeah yeah no you're totally right you are not crazy kate
1: woohoo, <laughs> crazy kate is fun sometimes too <laughs>
3: We'll we'll leave it up to the listeners for another opinion. Um, I just have to praise the visuals before we end the podcast because, I mean, every single week I'm sure you guys on Hannibal Podcast talk about how great the visuals are. But, I mean, for a pilot, like I think this is one of the greatest TV pilots of all time. But, like, David Slade does such a great job. He creates a brooding atmosphere. He avoids flashy cuts. He builds most of the tension on silence and tightly constructed sound design and a beautiful score and it's just so well executed Uh, I especially love the close-ups and the cinematography of this specific episode is done by Guillermo Navarro who was the DOP for Pan's Labyrinth and several of uh, del Toro's movies and I mean you're talking about one of the greatest DOPs in the world coming to work on a television show you know And I mean, that in itself is fantastic. And later on, he went on to direct one episode of Hannibal in season one. But he's the DOP of this episode. And it's just unbelievable, especially the way they treat colors. I love the contrast between the red blood and the white walls and the white gown that the girl wears and the white bed bed sheets And, you know, like just just such a rich sense of color and style to the whole entire throughout the whole entire episode. Like I love the set designs, Um, even like the clothes, like the colors of the clothes that like certain characters wear like especially like will graham for example so i mean again the costume design the set design the cinematography it's just all all beautiful
0: justine any final thoughts before we wrap up do you also think that this is one of the the better tv pilots
2: uh yeah i think it's an incredible pilot um it's almost good to be a standalone i know that sounds ridiculous because it it really like says everything out but like just on its own it's a beautiful piece of work it's self-contained you really feel uh such a strong sense of who the characters are their relationships to each other everything about it just just works i, I don't know what else to say it's uh, it's beautifully composed thought out you feel you just feel so much like every every beat just feels right it feels like coming back home i don't know i love
0: it it's a uh very good way to put it and that's a great place for us to end so thank you listeners for tuning in and thank you of course to both of our guests this week uh, justine where can our listeners find you online
2: well you can find me on set site uh where i'm currently the film editor i occasionally write as well um you can also find me on twitter at red room ranting uh, and that's
0: it and ricky where can our listeners find you online
3: over at org, where you can find all of my podcasts and my writing on Twitter. I am Site. You can also listen to our Walking Dead and Game of Thrones podcast, which I co-host with the lovely Kate. And uh, on the Walking Dead podcast, you'll hear me bitch a lot, but talk about how they should replace a lot of the characters with dogs like in the way they did with Hannibal and replacing Will Graham's wife and kid with dogs. Because dogs <laughs> rock, and it always <laughs> works. And then therefore you sympathize and like the character more. And uh, yeah.
0: And Kate, are you also at this Sound on Sight place?
1: You know, I hear it's the place to be. It seems like it's a pretty cool group of people over there. Um, so yes, I am over. I'm the TV editor over at Sound on Sight, so you can find reviews from me over there as well as the occasional original article I just wrote up. Um, and recently, we've it's the. When, when this is you know when we're recording it's we've recently said goodbye to Enlisted so I, I have an article about that show there I was a big fan of that one um, but you can also find podcasts from me there you know like my fabulous co-host uh, Ricky here on the Game of Thrones and uh, and Walking Dead podcasts, and then of course uh, we have this other weekly TV podcast that sound on site that goes up Tuesday nights or maybe sometimes early Wednesday mornings Televerse where Sean and I cover the rest of TV which is so much um, but yes, you can find all of that at Sound On Sight. I also write some reviews over at the AEV Club, and I love to talk to y'all on Twitter, so at the Televerse on Twitter if you guys want to talk some. You let me know if I'm crazy or if uh, if Ricky and I are on the money with that fourth wall thing over on Twitter.
0: And of course, as with the rest of everybody who has spoken, you can find some of my work at Sound On Sight, and as Kate mentioned specifically on the Televerse podcast, otherwise some of my written reviews including currently uh, Rectify and Penny Dreadful, will appear at TVOvermind.com. But that's it for this week. Uh, Kate okay, and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 2, Amuz Poosh. And thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. This has been This Is Our Design.